Good evening, everyone. How are you? Uh, my name is Eric. I want to invite you to turn to the book of Esther in your Bibles or kind of call it up on your smartphone or tablet, whatever you want to use. Um, I want to, we're going to spend some time in there in, in chapter six tonight. But before we, uh, before we go on, I want, to, I want to talk to you guys a little bit about just uh, some, of, some of my fonder memories uh, from my college days because I can just barely recall them. Um, it, my favorite time of col- my favorite time of college was always like the first or second day of class, first or second day of the semester. And I love those moments where the teacher would stand up in front of people and he'd be like, "This is English literature 3500. If you're in the wrong class, you need to stand up and leave." And like was ever was ever anybody here ever in the wrong class? Did that ever happen to anybody like you had to stand up and be like, "God, I think it may have happened to me." to me once. And I don't know if anybody here remembers it, but actually before September 11th, uh, they used to do this on airplanes. Like you would get on an airplane and the pilot or the the flight attendant would announce, this is flight so-and-so flying to Las Vegas. If you're on the wrong flight, you might need to get off right now. And like before September 11th, there used to be stories of of people who would end up on the wrong flights. I was on a flight once where a guy was like, oh no, and like run off the airplane. Um, and that was always my first, because I say this because contrary to what the fridge fold says, uh, I am not Pastor Dr. Mark McNeese. So if you have come here tonight to hear Pastor Dr. Mark McNeese speak, you are in the wrong place and you are free to leave if, if you want. Uh, did you get up? No? Okay. Um, okay, they can talk to you after. They can correct everything that I said. Uh, Another thing I want to tell you guys about college, before we talk, talk about the book of Esther, I want to get uh, something off my chest. It's, it's kind of, uh, uh, it's something that happens in college, and I don't know if you guys are in college or have been through college, like the amount of peer pressure that can be put on a person in college uh, is pretty unprecedented. You know, you get voices kind of pushing you one direction or another, try these things, experiment. You know, I was in a dorm for a few years and a bunch of dudes my age all kind of trying things, different cultures, and everyone's suggesting, you know, you should really do this, you should really do that. And I'm like, man, that's, that's not the way I was brought up. And they're like, no, do it. Everybody's doing it. So uh, during, sometime during my first senior year of college, um, some, a group of us started like experimenting, doing the things that we had never done before. And these guys came to me and they said, Eric, you need to try this. And I'm like, I shouldn't, you know, I, I was brought up different than that. And they're like, no, no, really, you really should. You know, and then what's the phrase everybody use? Everybody's doing it. And I'm like, man, I just don't know. I feel weird about this. And I'm like, no, it's going to be fine. So for better or for worse, because it's just what happens, um, I spent uh, at least a significant portion of one semester of my senior year watching all my children. I don't know how it happened, but somehow, like, I, don't, I think it was at 2 o'clock every weekday, we were just like, it's all my children. Uh, Erica Kane, of course, which I pretty much would confess I had a, a crush on as a 21-year-old young man. Uh, anybody who, remember who this guy is? Anybody? Just me? I haven't said it yet. I, uh, well, somebody this morning knew who it was. And I'm like, you watched it too? You're an addict too? This is Adam Chandler. He had a twin brother named Stuart. 
I don't, the plot lines were all a little bit fuzzy. I can at least claim that I don't remember everything that happened. But, um, but the deal is, the reason I bring this up is because we are in the middle of a soap opera in the book of Esther, right? Like we have uh, impending genocide going on. We have a plot to impale this guy named Mordecai on not a 10-foot pole, not a 20-foot pole, not a 40-foot pole, but a 75-foot pole. And I was thinking about this, and I'm like, man, don't you think after the first five feet, it's pretty much irrelevant how tall the pole is? I would think that after, after a certain amount of like three feet of impalement, it's kind of like, do you need the other 72? I don't know. But this crazy story is going on, and we find ourselves in the middle of it. It's as bad as it can get. It is a complete soap opera. Uh, and we're going to dig into kind of the middle of it, almost literally the middle of it tonight with chapter six. But before we do that, I want to invite, uh, invite a young man up here to help me. This is Hayden Palmer. Everybody welcome Hayden up to the stage. You rocking the uh, phone tonight? Is that what yep. you're doing? Okay. Yep. So Hayden is going to read just some portions of the scripture, and then we're going to talk about it. And, uh, and so with that being said, I'm going to pray. So if you guys would just maybe bow your heads, join me in prayer before we go on. Heavenly Father, uh, just pray that you would be with us tonight. Pray that you would center my thoughts and my heart. And I pray that we would just be able to learn from you, God, that you would speak very clearly uh, to me and through me and to all of us in this room, God, that we might be changed, that we might grow, that we might be refined a little bit into uh, kind of the, the men and women and the sons and daughters that you so desire us to be. Pray in the name of Jesus. And every God, everybody said, amen. amen. Awesome. Well, why don't you start us off, Hayden, with verses one through three. Let's gotcha. go. That night, the king had trouble sleeping, so he ordered an attendant to bring the book of the history of his reign so it could be read to him. In those records, he discovered an account of how Mordecai had exposed the plot of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the eunuchs who guarded the door to the king's private quarters. They had plotted to assassinate King Xerxes. What reward or recognition do we ever give Mordecai for this? The king asked. His attendants replied, nothing has been done for him. Okay, so the king has trouble sleeping. And he does what a lot of us may have done in our life. Like when you can't sleep, you just try to do something that's going to bore you out of your skull. So maybe you can't go to sleep. I actually went this week and I, I looked uh, I clicked on the Florida legal code just to kind of see what it would be like. And I was like, I'm going to print it. And I just like printed some random section out. And I was like, yeah, this is really boring. This probably would, I thought I might read it to you guys. But then I was like, what if they fall asleep? Then it'd be kind of awkward. But so the king has trouble sleeping. And, you know, at at first thought, you're kind of like, oh, he has this really, really boring thing read to him. But there's actually a legitimate reason that he has the, the accounts of his reign read to him. And that is that in those days when you were a king, maintaining your reign, maintaining your kingship and maintaining your status of a living, breathing human being required that, that you know who you owed favors to and that you made sure that the people that you owed favors to were sort of compensated or taken care of. Because if those folks were not compensated or taken care of, it's highly likely that you would wake up one morning and find poison in your king Wheaties or whatever it is you ate as a king for breakfast, or you would find a knife in your back. So when the king had sort of a 
a, a downtime, he's like, read me the list of people that I owe favors to because I need to make sure that I'm taking care of those people. And so uh, the, the servants read and he's like, oh, Mordecai, that, that guy that, that you know, uncovered this plot to assassinate me. Now remember, Mordecai is the guy that's gonna be impaled on a, how tall is a pole? 75 feet. So uh, the king doesn't know this yet, but Haman is plotting to have this done. All right, let's pick up the story. Let's go ahead and verse four through six. Who is that in the outer court, the king inquired. As it happened, Haman had just arrived in the outer court of the palace to ask the king to impale Mordecai on the pole he had prepared. So the attendants replied to the king, Haman is out in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. So Haman came in, and the king said, What should I do to honor a man who truly pleases me? Haman thought to himself, Whom would the king wish to honor more than me? He's not a modest guy at all. Uh, so there's so much going here that I'm sorry. Like this, this, I find some of this funny. So Haman is planning to impale Mordecai on how tall? So I wonder, has he brought the pole with him? Like, has he come to visit the king with like, I oh, got this 75 and everyone's like, what you got the pole for, Haman? He's like, oh wait, you, it's going to be awesome if you find out. So the, the king, the, so Haman shows up and in this, in this brief six verses, I want to suggest to you that we have actually encountered um, four dicer deity moments. You know, last week, I think Mark was talking about how sometimes life doesn't have these sort of aha moments, these dicer deity moments. Like sometimes life is just life. But other times, like the dicer deity moments just come flying at you. And I want to suggest to you that in these six verses, we've just encountered four coincidences, if you will. So the first one is that the king just can't sleep. The second one is that when he, uh, when he has the, the he, cho- he chooses to have the, the list and the, the, the stories of his, uh, his reign read to him. And when he hears it read, it's the section about Mordecai. And he's like, oh, yeah, Mordecai. And then the fourth thing that happens is that this guy Haman shows up. And that's going to be important in, and as we kind of uncover the next few verses. But what we see happening right now is kind of ironic because we need to remember that we know things as the reader that the king doesn't know, that Haman doesn't know. Primarily, we know that Esther is like up to something. Esther knows about this plan for Haman to exterminate the Jews, and she's decided to do something about it. And we know that, but Haman doesn't. Haman's in the king. He's like, no, king, I got this great idea. There's this guy, Mordecai, at 75 feet. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be the best thing your reign has ever seen. But he doesn't know that Esther has been up to something. Now, between you and me, Esther's plan to like prevent genocide seems a little bit strange to me at this point. Okay, she finds out Mordecai is like, Esther, Haman is going to exterminate our, our people. And if you guys remember a few weeks ago, uh, Dan Meyer talked about, you know, he, Mordecai gives her this speech and he's like, for such a time as this. And I think back in the 90s, there was like this really kind of hokey, inspirational Christian song, for such a time as this. And it was like this inspirational speech, Esther, you were created for this moment. This is the moment where you get to stand up and do something. And she's like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to throw a party. And I wonder if Mordecai was like, what's plan B? <laughs> because I was like, 
okay, you got, okay, Esther, I'm going to trust that you got something else beside the party because maybe the last time I checked, parties don't really prevent genocide, but who knows? But Haman is at the apex of his power. He's at the apex of his life. Who would the king want to honor more than me? And then if you know the story, if you remember the story, Mordecai is about to die. Haman is way up here. Mordecai is way down here. But we as the reader know that something is working in the background here. And we don't know yet about like what exactly is going to happen. But Esther has, has tried to do something. She's making some kind of decisions. And so let's pick the, the story back up in, in verse uh, 7. So he replied, If the king wishes to honor someone, he should bring out one of the king's own royal robes, as well as a horse that the king himself has ridden, one with a royal emblem on his head. So let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let him see that the man whom the king wishes to honor is dressed in the king's robes and led through the city square on the king's horse. Have the officials shout as they go, This is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. So what Haman is essentially asking for is to receive the status and to be recognized as having the same status and power as the king. In the ancient Near East, uh, it was kind of understood that if you, the, the king's robes had almost a mystical, magical power. So if you wore the king's robe, somehow you got some of the king's essence and some of the king's power. So Haman is essentially like, put the robes on me. Give me a horse with the royal emblem. Let somebody see me as the status of the king. And again, Haman, his power, his stature, just going up and up and up and up and up. But what we're about to see is a great reversal that Haman is kind of uh, where he's at. He's not going to stay there for long. And where Mordecai's at is not going to stay there for long. Go ahead. Excellent, the king said to Haman. Excellent. Quick, Quick. take the robes and my horse and do just as you have said, for Mordecai the Jew. Wait a minute. Who was that? Mordecai the Jew. Not Haman? Not Haman. Not Haman. Not Haman. But who? Mordecai the Jew. Mordecai the Jew. Mordecai the Jew. So, so what do you think Haman's face is like? He's like, what? So, yeah, go ahead. <clears throat> who sits at the gate of the palace. Leave out nothing you have suggested. So Haman took the robes and put them on Mordecai, placed him on the king's own horse, and led him through the city square, shouting, this is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the palace gate, but Haman hurried home and de uh, home dejected and completely humiliated. When Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends what had happened, his wise advisors and his own wife said, Since Mordecai, this man who has humiliated you, is of Jewish birth, you will never succeed in your plans against him. It will be fatal to continue opposing him. All right, this is so crazy. So... Uh, what we said is, uh, actually, that's, and that's good, Hayden. Everyone, thank Hayden for being up here. Thank you for your contribution. Uh, so it's not just enough that Mordecai is not going to be executed. It's not just enough that he's going to be saved. What you begin to see is these two tra trajectories are doing this. Mordecai now gets elevated to the exact stature that Haman was seeking. And not only that, but Haman starts to decline. 
And there's so many kind of funny things and odd things that are, that are in this. If you guys were here last week, you know that uh, the whole plan to have Mordecai executed was cooked up alongside his wife and these trusted advisors. They're like, yeah, man, do the the impalement thing. It's going to be awesome. And then we're told here that they go back and Haman's like, man, guess what happened? And they're like, oh, that guy, dude, you're in trouble. And like, you should never have confronted Mordecai. And I think Haman would have been like, you guys were the ones telling me just like two days ago that this was a great idea. And they're like, not us, man. I don't know what's going on. So, uh, so Haman and Mordecai begin to change. And there's, uh, there's something buried in the last verse of the chapter. The last verse of the chapter reads this. While they were still talking, the king's eunuchs arrived and quickly took Haman to the banquet that Esther had prepared. And the the thing that's kind of buried in that is that Esther throws two banquets. She's already thrown one. The first one, Haman gets to attend. He finds out about the banquet and he just goes under his own free will. But the second time, and as his life begins to take a nosedive, these two servants, these two eunuchs show up, and they're like, you're no longer entirely free to go or stay. We're here, and we're going to take you to this banquet. And buried in the language is kind of like, whether you want to go or not. So Haman's life begins to unravel. And it unravels right around these banquets. Now, uh, there's something interesting about the word, the Hebrew word for banquets. The, the Hebrew word for banquet in the book of Esther is this word called mishta. Everybody say mishta. It simply means feast or party. But the interesting thing about it is that the book of Esther uses this word for feasts or banquet 20 times. The rest of the Old Testament, every time that there's a referral to a feast or a banquet, they use other words. They only use mishta in the rest of the Old Testament a total of 24 times, but 20 times in the book of Esther. Esther is a book of parties. Party, party, party. In fact, there are, uh, there, I think, something like nine or ten different feasts that are alluded to, and they kind of go like this. There's a feast in chapter 1, verse 2, and verse 4. There's another feast in chapter 1. There's a feast in chapter 2. Esther's first party is in chapter 5. Her second party is in chapter 7. And then there's three more feasts after that. Now, some of these feasts are put on by Esther. Some of them are put on by the king. Some of them are put on by the Jews. But what some scholars have begun to notice is that some of these feasts have similarities. And what's more is that the similarities kind of follow a pattern. What I mean by this is that there's some similarities between the first feast in chapter 1 and the last feast in chapter 9. And then there's another similarity just in terms of who comes to the party, who's giving the party, what the theme of the party is between like the second feast of the book and the second to the last feast of the book. And then it goes in and builds in and builds in. And then at the center of the book, you have these two feasts by Esther in chapter 5 and chapter 7. And at the center of all of this is chapter 6. And at chapter 6, everything begins to change. Between the two banquets that Esther holds, 
the whole book begins to turn. And I, would, and I would kind of put it to you maybe this way, that there are moments uh, in our lives on which an awful lot hinges. We may not always recognize them. There may not always be a road sign that says, hey, everything's about to change right now. When the king woke up because he couldn't sleep, I don't know that there was a sign or, or an audible voice saying, oh, this is the night, king, that you're going to save the Jewish people from genocide. This is the night, king, that you're going to um, not have Mordecai executed. And yet, everything changes between these two banquets on a sleepless night where he just happens to hear this account read and he happens to ask who's in the courtyard and he makes these decisions. And I want to ask you, like, what if you were the king? What if you were in that king's shoes? What if you found yourself in a moment that didn't necessarily feel like a sort of Grand Canyon moment or a moment that, that all eternity was going to change on, and yet you had to make a decision? You woke up in, in sort of your version of a sleepless night and you, all of a sudden you had a decision to make and you were like, well, maybe I should do this or I should do that. Because God uses this king. Now remember who this king is. He's a pagan king. Esther's strategy to save her people has been to hold two parties. But in between those two parties, this pagan king that does not acknowledge God encounters a series of, of situations that he has to make a decision and it changes everything. An outsider who has no business kind of knowing what God's about changes the destiny of God's people. And this should not really surprise us because like it or not, our God has this crazy habit of choosing really, really unlikely characters to provide dice or deity moments for people. God loves to use the ordinary, the unexpected people to kind of make a decision on which everything changes. And I think sometimes we lose sight of it that we think it's only the super spiritual. It's only the people who have it all together. It's only the folks who kind of look like Christians are supposed to look or look like God people are supposed to look. Those are the people that make the decisions that change the world. But this king who does not know God wakes up in the middle of the night, hears something being read, asks for Haman, and then goes, let's reward Haman and let's change everything. Now, some friends of mine have for a while been going through the gospel of Mark. I, uh, it's my favorite gospel. If you're supposed to have a favorite gospel, I don't know. Um, but we have been recently going through Mark chapter 6. And the whole idea of God using people to provide dice or deity moments gets drawn out in this one story that I want to share with you. Uh, Jesus, in chapter 6, sends his 12 disciples out. Says he sends them out two by two. He's like, don't take any money. Don't take any food. Wear your sandals and go. Heal people. Go cast out demons. Go have this authority. Go tell people to get their life together. The disciples go and they come back 
and they're tired. And Jesus is like, I see that you've been tired. You've been doing ministry. You've been doing this work that, uh, that I've sent you out to do. Come on, let's come away and take some downtime. But before Jesus and his disciples can get that downtime, thousands of people show up on the scene. And these thousands of people are hungry. And their disciples are like, all these people, and it's far from, it's far from any town. They can't be fed. They go, Jesus, what are we supposed to do about this? And the first thing Jesus says is like, you feed them. And they're like, okay, but Jesus, we don't have enough food. Or we don't have enough money to buy enough food for all these people. We don't have money to do this. And Jesus is like, what do you have? And I think at this point, like the disciples would be like, yeah, but you're Jesus. Like, can't you just make something happen? But instead, like Jesus is like, what do you have? You feed them. And so the disciples, they, they, they kind of look amongst themselves and, and they come up with some bread and they come up with some fish and they give them and somehow all these people get fed. Not only that, but at the end, the scriptures say that they go around and they pick up leftover stuff. And it says they gather the leftovers in baskets. And the Greek word for basket there is kofinos. And kofinos just means a simple like wicker basket that people in that culture would carry around with them. And sometimes they would carry food in it. Sometimes you would carry like your knickknacks. I don't know what kind of knickknacks you have in the first century, but... Um, but it's just an everyday bag that you would put stuff in. And these people would, would have it. And the implication, first of all, is that it's very clear that the food that the disciples use to feed everybody is their own food. That the implication is when Jesus has said, when Jesus says, what do you have? They didn't go around to thousands of people and say, can we all just pool our resources that somehow Jesus is like, the food that you need to use is your own. No matter how meager or how limited it seems, Jesus is like, start with what you've got and reach into this everyday bag that isn't super spiritual. Reach into this thing that you carry with you every day and out of that, you will feed these people. Out of that, you will make a difference. Out of that, you will provide a dice or deity moment. There's nothing that, that, label, that these bags or these whisker, wicker baskets, these kofinos had that sort of said, hey, Jesus is gonna feed a multiple thousands of people out of these baskets. They're not super spiritual baskets. They're a bag that you carry with you every day. Sometimes it might be orange and it might have tools in it. It might be a purse. It might be a, a, a suitcase. It might be a briefcase. But these guys had this thing with them that was just a part of their everyday life. And in it was the ability to change the world. The question I want us to, to wrestle with tonight is essentially this. What if somebody's dice or deity moment is waiting on you? I think like sometimes we think of dice or de deity moments as, as things that God puts 
in our path that we have to make a decision and go, well, should I go this way? Should I go that way? But what if also sometimes the dice or deity moment is waiting on the stuff that you have in your bag for somebody else? Just like the king. He provided a dice or deity moment for Mordecai. He provided a dice or deity moment for the entire Jewish people. And what if God is waiting for you to reach into a bag that you carry around with you every day that's not very spiritual? You don't, you're like, well, I wish I had something more spiritual. But God's like, no, what do you have? You've got this bag. You've got this job. You've got this gift. You've got this passion. You've got this strength. And God is like, reach into the bag and provide a dice or deity moment for somebody. That blows my mind because I, I wish sometimes that God would just do it all himself because he's God. And I think surely he's better at this than I am. But the exhilarating and even sometimes like terrifying nature of our God is that he trusts us with his mission. And he tells all of us, whatever you start with, wherever you're at, Just reach into the bag and do something. And the band's going to come up, and uh, they're going to play a last song for us. And, uh, and I would challenge you in, the, in the, the space of the song to just maybe just take a moment and go, God, what, what do I have that, that might actually change the course of somebody else's life? Do I have something that I don't think is very special but actually might be the thing that somebody else's entire life hinges on? And do I need to reach into this bag and bring it to the world and say, um, I, I don't know what the significance of this is, but I just want to give this to you. I want to have a conversation with you. I want to take you to lunch. I want to get involved in a ministry here, either at E3 or, or somewhere else where God is moving. But these bags in and of themselves have no special spiritual circumstance. It's what makes them spiritual is when, is when we make the effort to reach our hand in and grab something that's ours and go, I just want to offer this to the world. And as Alex sings... If something comes to mind, just write it down or, or, or jot it down in your phone and make a commitment to, to just make a phone call. And just take some kind of next step.